I was at a life group last Sunday, and Steve Ivey pulled out his Bible that he uh, typically brings in on Sundays, and he said, I found your first sermon as we were flipping through Colossians, and he had, we used to do these little sermon note strips, and he placed those in his Bible, and it's weird to think that uh, my first Sunday official as official pastor at Grace Church was in Colossians, and my last Sunday is in the same vicinity even of the book of Colossians. And so it's a true joy to get to bring this uh, one more time and to end in Colossians. I want to let you know before I preach how much I love this church and how much I love the people that are here. Um, we've been through a lot together uh, and we are part of the family of God, regardless of whether I continue coming to this church or not, right? We are brought together in Christ. And I just wanted to tell you how much of a joy it is to get to be up here one more time with you guys. Paul writes this, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. It's strange to see the words rejoice and suffering in the same sentence, but both of these words are essential to capture the reality of what ministry is. Ministry is simultaneously one of the most rewarding and joyful endeavors, and yet also one of the hardest callings, such that Paul himself could call it suffering. And it's not just that there's some aspects that bring joy in ministry and other aspects that bring suffering. That's true of any job, right? Those of you that are carpenters or accountants or um, maybe you're architects or teachers or whatever you are, that's true of any job. There's some things that you love and some things that you hate. However, ministry is uniquely designed to be suffering mingled with joy. It's uniquely designed in that way. That ministry is those two things at all times, suffering and joy, together. Now, it may seem strange for Paul to describe it as a joyful struggle or even a, in a little catchier way, a happy hardship, right? He's basically saying his whole ministry has been a happy hardship for them. But that's the way that he describes in Colossians 1. He rejoices in his suffering, not rejoices despite his sufferings, but rejoices in his sufferings. For Paul, ministry means suffering, but is a suffering that he joyfully endures for the sake of Christ and his body. Now today, the goal is simply to reflect on the nature of gospel ministry, especially as you say goodbye to one of your pastors and you start the search for the next. I think it's especially important right now for you to understand what is gospel ministry. And what is a pastor supposed to do? At this moment, it's extremely crucial for you to understand those aspects of what ministry actually is. And not only will it reveal what ministry is and what ministers do or what they should do, it should also shape your own role in ministering to others around us. In this passage, we're going to see six aspects of what is supposed to be true about every gospel minister and their ministry for the church. We'll look at the cause of ministry, what the ministry's for, the stewardship of ministry, the task of ministry, essentially the job description that the minister is supposed to work from, the goal of ministry, the energy that the pastor works in ministry, and then the hope of the pastor in ministry. So let's talk about the cause. 
As I've already said, Paul writes, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister. Other than Jesus, it is difficult to imagine someone who suffered more for the church than Paul. Paul suffered a lot. He lists out his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11. He writes that he had far greater labors than anyone else, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Then he goes on just to list them out, just in case anybody was still doubting that. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That means being whipped with the cat of nine tails 39 times or being whipped with a whip 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger of rivers, danger of robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, Oh, and apart from these other things, there's the daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. Sounds like a nice job. Now, let's be clear. Paul, in listing these things out, he's not complaining. He's not playing the sympathy card. He doesn't want you to pity him. He doesn't want you to feel bad for what he's doing. He's simply addressing the fact of what ministry inherently is by nature. Ministry is hard, my last Sunday, so I can say it, right? Most pastors can't say that to their church, but ministry is hard. It's difficult. It's extremely difficult to do. He views his suffering as filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, this by no means implies that Paul thinks that Jesus' death and resurrection was was missing something at all. He's already gone on to say that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead who redeems all things, whether on heaven or on earth, through the blood of his cross. So he clearly believes that Jesus' death was sufficient for all things. So what does he mean when he says, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, it's not that he's working for the completion of Jesus' work, but rather his suffering is a continuation of it. Because people like Paul suffer for the gospel, their suffering is for the body. Jesus died for you to be forgiven. Ministers suffer so that that message can go out to all the nations. They bleed, they sweat, they die, they cry for that explicit reason, so that what Christ did would be heard to all. That's what he means by filling up the afflictions. All he's simply doing is telling the good news that Jesus died for. Jesus died for you, He died for your sins. He died to reconcile you to God and he rose again and ascended so that you could be seated in him forever in the high places of heaven. Now, who's gonna tell that to people? Who's gonna go across national boundaries and suffer sickness and plague and all kinds of other things? Who's going to come into churches and administer that and and to show people what what the gospel actually is and what it means to their lives? Well, that's the role of a gospel minister. He does it for the body of Christ. And because he does it for the body of Christ, he does it for Christ himself. 
He does it to administer what Christ began. Now, I think Paul's words for the rest of us remind us that suffering is a part of God's plan to bring good news to a lost world. It's just the way he's designed it. That suffering is not pointless. It has a point. It has a purpose. God makes it necessary so that in our suffering, all people can hear the gospel. This should be really comforting news to you because you, as ministers, as those who are a church of gospel-centered people who have been tasked with the Great Commission, you will suffer. Your wallets will bleed. Your time will be drained. Your energy will be spent. Your sons and daughters will be sent. It's gonna be extremely difficult for you. And yet in that suffering, God's working so that he can speak to the world about the gospel. C.S. Lewis called, it's my last Sunday, gotta use a C.S. Lewis quote, right? (laughs) C.S. Lewis quote, uh, C.S. Lewis said, suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think back over the years of people I've buried, people I've walked with uh, through cancers, through hardships, and just the message of the gospel that was spoken to me being in proximity to them. Their suffering being God's megaphone into my life. I thought I was there to pastor Gary Pate to the grave. And in reality, as I'm sitting on the porch watching Gary suffer and struggle to trust in the Lord, I'm being shaped to further faith, to further believe and trust in the Lord. I remember walking with Ken on the way to his deathbed and sitting on the back porch and talking about the realities of heaven and him asking me, what do you think it's gonna be like? And what well, can, you, can you show me in scripture? What is it, what is it gonna look like when death finally comes? And me, myself being baptized in my imagination of what in the world is it gonna be like? I remember sitting with, uh, at, at this little Muddy's coffee shop with Dennis Holcomb and eating strawberry salad. That was the thing he liked. Never understood why I wanted to have coffee at lunchtime, but he put up with it. And just the, the gleanings that I had from walking with him, suffering, whether it's breast cancer, whether it's a brain tumor, whether it's heart disease, whether it's job loss, whether it's the loss of a child, Man, I get, one of the reasons I didn't write about Mila in the sermon is I was just going to fall apart. But just the way that thousands of people heard the gospel through that. God has designed your suffering for a purpose. And it's not wasted. It has an eternal impact. The cause of ministry. Why should anyone suffer? Why should anyone sign up to suffer? Why should you volunteer to suffer by changing diapers in the children's ministry? Why should you sign up to suffer by giving up your Wednesday nights for the Awana program? Why should you suffer by giving up your time, your energy, your resources, and to do everything possible to make the gospel known? Because it's for the cause of the body of Christ And because it's for his body, it's for him. That's why we do it. The cause of ministry is for your sake, his body, 
and therefore ultimately for him. That's why we sign up for it. That's why we put our name down and we enlist up for such a hard and difficult work. And it's remembering those, that cause, remembering the body, remembering Christ, whose body it is, that keeps us in ministry. So we talked about the cause, now let's talk about the stewardship. The cause of ministry is Christ's own body. And to be blunt, Jesus cares about his body, so he's not gonna just entrust its care to anyone. Right, that, that may seem prideful <laughs> coming from a pastor. But to be honest, we don't see scriptural qualifications for bank accountants or teachers, carpenters in scripture other than to the qualifications of a Christian. Scripture is explicit about the qualifications of those men that pastor the church, the elders and the deacons who serve. Christ doesn't just entrust his body to just anyone. Just like you wouldn't trust your loved one to just any doctor off the street wielding a scalpel. He cares about his body. And that's why Paul describes it as a stewardship that was given to him by God. In Ephesians 3, he calls it a stewardship of God's grace. Meaning that it was God's gracious gift I've been in ministry long enough and have listened to enough coworkers and I have listened to my, myself event enough to know that there are burdensome aspects about serving a church. There's some hard parts about it. If you want to know Fred's retired, he can tell you everything. There's a book that I know Fred knows called uh, Stories I Couldn't Tell While I Was in Ministry. <laughs> I think Fred could write a few of those. But the reality is, is there are some burdensome part, parts about it. There's some hard people. There's some difficult cases. However, ministry should never be defined primarily by what makes it difficult. It's not, that's, it's, it's difficult. It's just the way it is. But it's not defined by its difficulty. In its true form, ministry is intended to be seen as a gracious gift. A strange gift. A gift that often has pastors wondering, why in the world did you give that to me? Feels like an elephant gift, white elephant gift sometimes. But it's a gift, a gracious gift given by God from grace. Now just think about what ministers get to do. We get to serve the bride and the bridegroom himself. That's what we get to do. And it's an honor that's to be received with thankfulness that he's given us this gift. Now, the second aspect about the word stewardship, not only is it a gift, but the word also describes a plan. The word comes from the Greek, that, the Greek word that describes a household administration. Um, in essence, what Paul is saying here is that his ministry is putting things in order in, in churches according to God's blueprints and plans. Everything he's doing is according to what God wants him to do. Who decides what should happen in the church? Who decides what its mission should be? Who decides how it should conduct itself? Paul would say, well, not me. I think the pastors here would say, not us. It's not a group of elders. It's not a pastor, not the Pope, not Paul. Then who is it? Well, ultimately it's God who decides what must happen in his church. 
Paul says as much in 1 Timothy 3.15. You know, if you've read 1 Timothy, his whole point in writing is to show Timothy how one ought to behave in the household of God. So when he writes things about women not preaching, or he writes things about the characters of an elder, the characteristics of an elder, or he writes things about deacons, I mean, if you haven't read 1 Timothy, then read it. Um, It lists off a lot of hard rules. Well, whose rules are they? Paul says that they're rules that come in light of the fact that the church is the household of God. Let me just put that real simply. God's house, God's rules. God's house, God's rules. There's a lot of things I'm not sure I like about God's rules sometimes. There's a lot of things that I don't always understand. But the reality is, is it's God's house, God's rules. Whatever decisions are made need to be consistent with his blueprints, his oikonomia, the the stewardship, right? The blueprints of what he's given us. He's, He's handed it down. He said, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to build. Here's what I'm doing in the world. It's not for us to say, whoa, 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 you sure you want to put that wall there? Whoa, 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 what do you, what do you mean about women not preaching? Whoa, whoa, what do, you, what do you mean that elders need to be not greedy? That's not for us to do. These are his blueprints for us to obey. Like I say, you might not always understand it. Wouldn't it be much easier if the, the, the elders here looked for a guy who was really sharply dressed Um, who knew how to build a church, who knew how to increase the numbers, who knew how to manage budgets, who was super effective and efficient in in administration. (laughs) Never mind the fact that his former workplaces call him a bully, or never mind the fact that he was abusive, but he's really good at what he does. Wouldn't it be a lot easier to hire a pastor who's pragmatic and could do things really well, even if he doesn't have the character? Well, some of us might want to say, yeah, that that makes sense. What about elder councils? Don't you think we could work a lot more efficiently if we didn't have seven guys debating what to do? Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? But at the same, and any of the elders that are honest, they they can tell you sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes it feels like it would be a lot easier to get things done if we had a different way. The reality is though, in the long term, when you give it time and you see that God's plan is not only right, but it is good. It is good. It's not for us to critique his blueprints. He values character over administrative abilities. He values the heart of a pastor more than he values the skill sets in what seminary he went to. He values an elder council in unity more than he values a pastor who could do it all by himself. The reality is, is God's given us blueprints. And because of that, whether it's our leadership structure, whether it's our mission, whether it's our commitments, whether it's our values or anything else we do, gospel-centered ministers and a gospel-centered church see themselves as stewards, not masters. Builders, not architects. It's not for them to make the plan. It's for us to follow the blueprints. Amen or no? According to Paul, the cause of ministry is the body of Christ himself, and the stewardship is the plan and the gracious gift of God to qualified people. 
He now sheds light on the task of ministry. If you've ever wondered, and I I know some of you have because I've had breakfast with some of you and you're like, what in the world does a pastor do? Well, I'm gonna try to answer that today. Why did God see fit that we needed apostles like Paul? Why after the apostles died, was it necessary for the church to have elders? Why was it necessary for them to have such leaders? God entrusts his ministers with a very important task. And Paul explains what that primary task is in verse 26. He says that his task, if you want to know Paul's job description, here's it, here it is in a single line, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. By God's design, ministry is meant to be expository. What we do, ministers, pastors, are essentially, we're tour guides of this cavern filled with gospel treasures. Our job is to take you into the cavern and to shine the flashlight on some of the jewels you would not see by yourself. That's our job. that's, That's about the most simple analogy I can give you. I'm not putting jewels into the cavern. I'm not putting treasures there. I'm not burying these treasures. I'm not the one who makes them. I didn't forge the gold and the silver that's in the gospel. I just found it. And then when I found it, God called me to show others where it was. So now I go down into the amazing, mysterious cave of the gospel. I shine light on the beautiful treasures that are there. It's the task of the gospel worker. He doesn't mean mystery here in the Sherlock Holmes sense, right? Where it's a, it's a case that needs to be cracked. Instead, it's something that's been unfolding over time. Something's been unwrapping. And as this, think of a crumpled piece of paper. As this paper continues to unfold, there begins to be clarity about what's on it. Then Jesus comes and you find Christ, his death, his resurrection, his plan to make all things new. And finally, the mystery's revealed, right? It's unfolded. Well, it's up to us as pastors to show that unfolding plan of God and where you fit in it, how, what your place is in it. Redemption has been planned since before the creation of the world. It's been going on and on and on for generations. You're catching up to it. It's our job to help you realize where you are, when you are, and what God has called you to do. Namely, believe in Jesus and go make disciples. Fulfill his mission. Obey God and help others. That's our job. You know, like I said, it's, it's interesting to try to describe to people what a pastor does, especially when I meet people in the park or I meet people on my mountain group uh, uh, Facebook app and all that kind of stuff. When I meet people, uh, like, and I tell them, well, I'm a pastor, there's always the same question. Can I ask you what you do? You know, Ted introduces himself as a doctor. Everybody knows what a doctor does, right? Trisha is a teacher, no questions. Brad is an accountant, no questions. John is a sales rep, no questions. No, no one really has any questions about what those people do. But what does a pastor do all day? Ministry is a very broad vocation that includes caring for people. I call vocation as in calling, not as in career. It's a very broad calling that includes caring for people, 
counseling them through their losses and addictions, guiding them through difficult decisions, casting vision for how to utilize the collective resources to spread the gospel, and organize the church's administration. However, beyond all of those things, all those things are important, but beyond all those things, the pastor makes the gospel known in every aspect of your life. How's the gospel apply to your marriage? How's the gospel apply to your fatherhood? How's the gospel apply to your work? How's the gospel inform you as a mother? How's the gospel inform you as a friend? Our job is very simply to apply the gospel in every nook and cranny of your life and to help you see its light. You know, we see that singular focus of ministry and what Paul says to Timothy. You guys that have been in church for a while know it. What does he tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2? Very simple. Preach the word. That's it. That's what he tells him to do. All the things he, you know, Timothy was a gifted person. But of all the advice that Paul could give to Timothy, the one thing he says is preach the word. That's the one task that Timothy is called to do. You know, I, I think a person can be a gifted administrator. He could communicate better than anyone else around him. He can easily draw a large crowd. He can move people to tears when he speaks, but unless he prioritizes making the word of God known in the gospel, he is not fulfilling the task of being a gospel minister. Something for you to keep in mind as you search for new pastors. He can bring in all the nice shiny tools of all the great apps that exist for iPhone to keep in communication with you. He can turn administrative things around in this church. Within 10 months, you guys could be exploding out the walls, and I hope so, exploding out the walls to make room, make space for new people. But if he doesn't preach the gospel, he's not doing what a gospel-centered minister is called to do. If you want to sum up the work of a gospel minister, it comes down to those two, to that great task. And Paul goes on to explain it. Also, that, those, that task of preaching the gospel entails two other things. First, we are to remind people of God's great love. God being a gracious God, he has given us the riches of the glory of the mystery. That's what he says in this text, which is Christ in us. God is a God who has lavishly loved his people. He hasn't just saved you. He could have just done that. But his grace is overabundant. He saved you. He adopted you. And now he is making a place for you in his presence. And so one of the great works of a pastor is getting to remind people of how much God has loved them. And we do that by preaching the gospel. Look at everything God has done for you in Christ to bring you into the lavish richness of his glory. And not just right now, but in ages to come. I mean, we've got this... We've got this God who so lavishly, as a father, loves his people that he did not only defeat death in the death of his son, he seated us in Christ so that, as Ephesians 2 says, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches. Do you know how much immeasurable riches are? Can anybody, can anybody tell me how much immeasurable riches? Well, that's pretty cool if you just stop there, but we're not talking about Riches in the wealth sense, immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. 
toward us in Christ Jesus. Almost as if he can't put another superfluous word in there, right? Abundant riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So in preaching the gospel, ministers, gospel ministers get to call people to enjoy, to taste the gospel wine, to try to count the immeasurable riches of Christ, to bask in the richness of his love. But that's only one side of that. If we only did that, that's good, but that's not all that ministry is. Paul gives a second task. The second task is proclaiming Christ and warning and teaching people to live wisely. Because the gospel is true, it makes a demand on your life. Because Christ has set you free from sin, Romans 6 says, now you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. How you live after the gospel matters. You do not live in obedience to God to earn salvation. You live in obedience to God because you have been saved. It's a key mark of your transformation the renewed mind, and now you're able to love people in the way that you should. So those are the two ways in the broad umbrella of preaching the gospel, making known the mystery of Christ. We do that by reminding you that God loves you with a deep, deep love. But then we warn you about the dangers of sin and the things that Christ has called you away from. That's not always a pleasant task. Over the years, I have said some hard things behind this pulpit, things that I didn't want to say, things that were really hard. But just because they were hard, they were no less an act of love to preach the gospel to you. Churches judge pastors based on a lot of factors, and many of them are important factors. When I, when I talk to people of other churches about their pastor Oftentimes I hear, well, you know, administration, leadership strategy, missional endeavor, the ability to to write. I, I hear a lot of things that they like or dislike about their pastor. However, when pastors stand before the Lord, they will answer to the Lord for one thing. I think administration matters. I think strategy matters. I think communication matters. I think all those things matter. But at the end of the day, there is one standard by which pastors will be judged. Did they care for the flock by feeding the sheep? Did they feed the sheep? That's the one thing Jesus told Peter when he restored him. Feed my sheep. What do you think he meant by that? Well, teach them. Show them the gospel. Give them the rich bread and the the marrow-laden meat and the old age wine of the gospel and sit at a feast every Sunday, every Sunday, every meeting. Tuesday morning, they come in depressed. They want to talk to you about their adult children. You lay out the feast for them. Feed the sheep. That's the one thing that we're called to do. Out of all the concerns that I've ever had for this church, is that there would be starving sheep under my watch. One thing I want to stand before the Lord and to know that I fed the sheep. It's one of the reasons why James says not so many people should be called to be teachers because teachers will be judged on a stricter account. 
Why? Because they're responsible. They feed the sheep or they don't, or they feed them trash, or they feed them healthy, good gospel. It means whatever opinions you might have about the next guy, you're gonna be evaluating new pastors really quickly. The elders have done a really difficult job of sifting through men of character. They've listened to hours of sermons to see how well they feed the sheep. That's been, from what I've heard, that's been the primary concern is how well will they feed you? And I hope that is the basis of your evaluation of them is whether they feed you well or not and nothing else. Now, staying focused on these tasks are of immense importance because it is by reminding people of the riches of Christ and warning them against sin that gospel ministers, look at what he says in verse 28, may present everyone mature in Christ. You see, our work has a goal. It has a telos. It has an end to it. Gospel ministers must remember that the people they serve will one day stand before the Lord Revelation describes it as a great wedding feast, right? So when Jesus comes back and he takes his bride to himself, there's gonna be a big marriage feast, the wedding feast of the lamb. You know, pastors are like members of the bridal party. And our task is to prepare the bride to walk the aisle. Every elder, every gospel minister, every deacon, every children's teacher, your job and goal is to prepare the bride. The wedding day's coming. And you get the joyful task of joining up with that and getting to help the bride get ready to see her bridegroom, all for the joy of seeing the bridegroom's eyes glisten in beauty at the beauty of his bride. How amazing that's gonna be. So ministry has a goal. It's, to, it's not just to tell you what you want. It's not to agree with your politics. It's, it's not to agree with your viewpoints on pandemics. It's, it's not to agree with your version of carpet color. It's not to agree with your way of doing things. It's to present you mature in Christ. That's the pastor's goal. The pastor doesn't do what you think he should do, but he's, his aim is to make sure that you are growing up as a beautiful bride, then he's doing his job. He's fulfilling the goal. His goal is to show, to, to make you become more and more mature so that one day Christ will find a holy bride without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. We just, pastors go to war on sin. Painful war on sin. Why? Because we want the bride to be spotless when Christ comes back. I remember when I was a kid, my dad and mom used to leave the home and they gave me chores. And they were like, we want this place spotless before you come back. I'd always ask them when they were coming and they'd say, oh, we don't want you. we're not gonna tell you when we're coming. Right? Whose parents did that to them? It's my, is that, okay. Well, you better believe, not knowing when they're coming back. I'm not watching soap operas, right? I'm not gonna just sit there and eat Cheetos. No, I'm going to be busy. We got, he said to make this place spotless. Pastors have that same urgency in mind. We don't know when the wedding day is coming. We don't know when the bridegroom's coming. But we are working feverishly to make the bride ready for any moment. And that's what I hope your new pastor will do. Whatever goals you set for yourself as a church or with him, 
I pray that the main goal will be that every person in this room is pressed to greater maturity. Let's talk about the energy now. We're gonna, we're gonna start speeding up here. Um, but given all the difficulties in ministry, it's a wonder Paul did not give up ministry, right? All the things that, why, why not after like the third time of getting whipped, why not just walk away and say, Paul, this is obviously not for you. How did he keep going? Did you know, according to, 22, to a uh, 2022 Barna study, the percentage of pastors who have considered quitting full-time ministry in the past year sits at 42%. Does that number astound anybody? 42%. That number raised drastically. There's the New York Times wrote an article that you can Google. Just put out New York Times pastoral burnout. It was such a phenomenon. No other profession from 2020 to 2022 saw as much turnover and people walking out, not even giving notices, just walking out than pastors. They, pastoral burnout even it was, was above teacher burnout. And that was an epidemic, right? That was a big problem. Of those who said they were thinking about quitting, 50, when they were asked why they were thinking about quitting, 56% said that was because of the immense stress of the job. 43% said that they felt lonely and isolated. 38% mentioned the stressful political divisions that had crept into the church. And 29% mentioned that the role had a negative effect on their families. Ministry's hard. It's really difficult and tough. You can call pastors babies when they say it, but the, you're not doing that job, so how do you know? Ministry's hard. So how do we have a hope of ever doing it and not quitting? How did Fred make it as long as he did? Without some kind of immoral fail failure or killing a church member? <laughs> how, do, how do people who walk through ministry do it? I think Paul gives us a little glimpse here. How does he cope with the hardships? Here's what he says, verse 29, it's subtle. For this toil, so all that work that he's talking about, that he just said, it's struggling. Now that word struggling comes from, the, from our word agony, right? So that's agnizomai, right? So, so he's saying, I agonize, how? With all whose energy? Look at that pronoun there. All whose energy? His energy, that he powerfully works within me. Paul works hard. He calls it agony. He agonizes for the church. But he doesn't do it in his own strength. It's Christ's work that is powerfully working within him. Now, this tells me two things. Number one, if Christ is truly working, if, he's, if it's his energy in the pastor, in the work of the pastor, any success we have is because of him. And any hardship we face will not stand in front of him. It gives great humility and great hope. If anything happened good in Grace Church over the last seven and a half years, it wasn't because of me. Ask any of the elders or my wife. <laughs> it wasn't because of me. I'd love to take credit for it. But the reality is, is I'm a sinful, fallen, flawed person like the rest of you. So how did anything good happen? 
How did anything good happen in Fred's ministry? How did anything good happen in Paul's ministry? It's Christ's energy working, Christ doing it. It's enough to raise the proud head of any pastor and to remind him, it's not you, it's him. But it's also enough to lift the head of any discouraged pastor by telling him, it's not on you, it's on him. That's why I have such great comfort in leaving Grace Church. Because the health of the church doesn't depend on me. I'm, I, I, sure, I'll give it to you. Some of you said, I think you're over, over exaggerating. I, I don't think so, but sure. Let's just say that I played an important part in the last seven and a half years. It, 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 I'm not a necessary fixture in the church. Christ is. He's the head. I'm the pinky toe. He's the head. And as long as the head is giving life to the body, the body's good. It's his energy. I pray that no pastor of Grace Church, no elder, no deacon will ever think this place is good because of them. Or when hardship comes, that this place is falling apart because of them. You are not powerful enough to build the church. The Lord builds the church. You don't get credit for building the church, which means you're also not powerful enough to destroy it. Man, that, that gave me so much hope all the time. It's like, okay, I recognize that I am too weak to build Grace Church into what it needs to be. But by God's grace, I'm also too, too weak to wreck it because it's not my church. It's the body of Christ. It's his energy that's working. And guess what? What Jesus wants to do with Grace Church, he'll do whoever stands here. He'll do whatever, whoever sits here. He doesn't, he's not, the gospel plan in the church is not contingent on you or I, and that should be a great humiliation and a great comfort to you. Just to stay dependent on him. So what's the hope? And this one I can summarize really quickly. He hopes, a four-part hope, and this is what he's mentioning here in chapter two, verses one through five. What does he hope will be true of the church? Number one, that you'll be encouraged. Number two, that you'll be unified. That's what he means by knit together in love. Number three, he wants you to enjoy the assurance in Christ. And number four, he wants you to be faithful to the gospel. That's the hope. My friends, that's my hope for you. I want you to be encouraged by the gospel. My greatest hope for Grace Church, moving on, is that you will be unified together, knit together in your souls, not disjointed and disunified or divisive, but unified, that you will be sure of the love of Christ in you and that you will be faithful to gospel clarity forever.